most of you realize that today is a unique celebration for disciples of Jesus all over the world. So we're doing things a bit differently this evening. I'm going to talk to you guys for a little bit. We're going to make lots of space for singing and celebration, responding to the reason that we have a church in the first place, the reason we are disciples of Jesus at all. And it starts, at least with my little spiel up here, with a photo that uh, was sent to me last week. Uh, It was a photograph that was making rounds uh, on the internet. This strange, sad, futuristically meta photograph is of late comedian Bob Saget's outstretched selfie arm as he crowds into the frame with late comedian Louis Anderson and late comedian Gilbert Godfrey. And in the text, my friend wrote, cursed selfie. Um, (laughs) Saget died in January. Louis Anderson died a couple of weeks later. Godfrey died earlier this week. But really, I told my friend, all selfies will be of dead people eventually. And few of us like hearing this, but we know that it's true. Death bothers us because we are aware of its inevitability, regardless of our philosophical convictions, the ways we sentimentalize life and purpose and meaning. Death, most of the time, strikes us as terribly unfair because we feel like things matter. We experience life in the world as if this is true. And whether you chalk it up to God or the spiritual gravity of the universe or a chemical combustion within the complex faculties of the human brain, all of us want to survive reflexively, innately, with conviction. Most of us don't usually want the terminal illness, the car crash, the freak accident. Ambitious or lazy or something in between, most of us do not look to the future and fantasize about the shark attack, or being struck by lightning. Something is pulling us. Something is drawing us towards survival. And you can call that natural selection or survival of the fittest. Call it cosmic or spiritual or scientific or ordinary or meaningless. But humanity is forever subject to some gravitational pull toward something behind the curtain. All of us in a car with no brakes, rushing at breakneck speed toward the same brick wall, desperate to figure something out on the ride. Why are we in it? Why the wall? Is this it? For as long as there have been human beings, we've been telling ourselves and one another stories. We answer questions with stories. And maybe the answer is nothing. Maybe it's the void. Nietzsche, Dawkins, deal with it. That's the story. Or maybe there's more to it. Maybe you've been here before and you'll come back again, your immortal soul reincarnated in physical form until you get to the whole nirvana thing, apparently, or the ultimate reality of Hinduism. Or maybe at the end, Allah will judge the deeds of long-dead humans in order to assign them eternal tickets to either paradise paradise or torment. Or maybe it's not Allah, but the Judeo-Christian God who will conjure up the souls of the dead and call them forth to heavenly reward or else fiery torment. Or maybe... Whatever you want to be true is true for you because you really are that special. In the opening lines of her essay, The White Album, Joan Didion wrote, We tell ourselves stories in order to live. We look for the sermon in the suicide, for the social or moral lesson in the murder of five. We interpret what we see. Select the most workable of the multiple choices. Yes, we tell stories. But for many in this room, today is a unique day of storytelling. And that story begins in a garden. 
the crisp dew of a morning that has not yet known discord or decay, all of life flourishing, the incredible sophistication of cell design, organic bodies replicating in microscopic complexity to become flowering flora or crawling, leaping, uh, flying, swimming fauna, over the scene, the great and glorious artist. And he moves his hands like a maestro's baton, and from his imagination spins spiraling galaxies, and he spools out stars ablaze like lanterns in the darkness of space. Flowering plants and thrumming insects and lumbering bears and swimming reptiles. But the artist is more than creator. He is the origin and source of the powerful force in all of the universe, liking and linking and drawing us to him and to one another. The creator God is love. If you open a Bible and you turn to page one, this is how the story begins. Is it literal history? Is it some kind of scientific argument? Is it an ancient Near Eastern creation mythos? Is it poetry? Is it metaphor? Or is it, in the story that we know and tell, true? It's our story, and we find ourselves in it. Because in this story, from the overflowing lavishness of his great love, that God crafts for himself company, men and women, kings and queens made to rule and reign over the wild and good world, trusting God, trusting his decree of goodness. We were to fill and subdue creation, to plunge naked hands into the supple raw materials of a blank slate world and create art and culture and goodness, a collaboration with God that reflects God and his goodness in the relational dance of love. God did not see fit to rule from the intimidating tower of an inaccessible throne. He steps down, his feet warm in the grass, arm in arm with his kings and his queens, and with excitement he commissions them, join me, trust me, and we will make something out of all of this, something good. And for a season, we loved him back. We joined in the goodness of his work, the fulfilling freedom of our vocation, until we were soured by our pride and led astray by a lie. When a forked tongue came, questions, whispers in our ear, must God be in charge? Is he truly good? Ought we not rule ourselves? And then came the accusations. God is lying. He isn't good. We can do better. And so the garden and its uninterrupted goodness fell with humanity's broken trust in God to be their good king. But as the garden fell, God cried out a promise over the crumbling Eden. This will not be the end of the story. Another king will come, and he will silence the serpent's lying tongue. He will crush the evil that has poisoned creation. And with God's promise echoing out over the scene, the garden collapsed. Black Toxins clouded the once glass-like river. The lion tore the flesh of the antelope. The fig they once shared was filled with wasps and decayed in the soil. Where once the vocation of humans was all the electricity and creative energy and joy of hard work, now work was often painful and joyless, laborious and unrewarding. And enmity grew like briars between humans whose potential collided with an ending. 
And the ending was called death. And now the idyllic peacefulness of the garden was usurped by violence and tragedy and hatefulness and corruption. And in the end, death and decay. And as the lion wets his lips with the blood of the antelope, so we, humanity, wet our lips with the blood of our brothers and sisters and with the blood of creation itself. And in our desperate scramble for power to satisfy appetites, to erect new gods that might fill the awful aching void that yawned open in our hearts where we left God behind, a downward spiral into chaos, murder, adultery, political megalomania, corruption, sexual abuse, just pages beyond the garden. And in the story, we, these fallen kings and queens, lament, fists raised to a seemingly indifferent sky. God, why won't you do something about this awful mess? And God might have wiped the slate of this failed experiment clean. He might have answered our pleas to eradicate evil by eradicating us. But the artist is more than creator. He is love. So God, this personal being called Yahweh, who is at his very core relational love, initiates the rescue plan. And out of his relational love, he again beckons to his human collaborators, come, let us put together these broken pieces. I am not yet prepared to abandon this dream of mine. The heart of God broken, inflamed with compassion for his wayward kings and queens, for creation itself. He burns with desire to see evil eradicated, to see goodness and justice reign over his masterwork as was intended. But the barbed tendrils of evil so burrowed in the heart of humanity will not be uprooted without destroying God's beloved, his fallen kings and his fallen queens." Because like visitors in God's museum, we have beheld God's masterpiece for only moments before we set to work tearing it apart with our bare hands, hurling upon it buckets of black ink, dousing it with our spit, defiling it with excrement. All of us, with contributions great and small, participate in the vandalism of God's desired good for us and for the world, and our clawing and clamoring up the backs of others to do ourselves good. We have brought our anointed rule to staggering disrepair. And through it all, God has opted to love us anyway. So Yahweh decides, my desire is to destroy evil without destroying evildoers, though themselves they do evil and they deserve to be destroyed. And on a day in human history, God spoke to people again as he had done before, as he had done in the beginning, and he made with them a covenant, a promise, like marriage vows. I will love you, and I will carry out my rescue mission in and through you, and as I said, the snake will be crushed, and I will rescue the world. And time wore on. Imagine this, another morning, the crisp dew of a morning that has known discord and decay and knows them well, all of life feeding off of and destroying itself in the cycle of sin and death. A priest of Israel steps before an altar and with a heavy heart begins the sacrifice. In it, a blameless animal, a frightened lamb, will be slaughtered as a powerful symbol, a reminder of the great cost of evil, the toll that it takes, the debt that it creates, that evil 
always brings about death. And somehow in this profound, symbolic, violent gesture, the guilt of humanity, the vandalism of God's goodness will be transferred to this shivering, innocent animal, and its blood will pour out, a sobering visual of its very life draining away. And Israel remembers that evil is costly, that fracturing of relationships is destructive, and the power of death unforgiving. And the priest will wander the temple with guilt-laden spirit, sprinkling, sprinkling the animal's blood as a symbol of life, washing away the horrible consequences of evil. And yet, the cycle will carry on. More kings, more queens, more evil, some better than others, but always with more suffering, more sin, and more death. And eventually, like the garden, the land of Israel itself falls. They had forgotten the poor, the oppressed, the foreigner. They had begun to participate in and even institutionalize systems of injustice. No longer did they bring their sacrificial lambs with heavy hearts, but as empty ritual, the obligation of blood with no thought and no cost and Yahweh pleaded with his people from the mouths of prophets, remember the covenant, remember the marriage vows, and Israel would not listen. And time wore on. Imagine this, another morning, the crisp dew of a morning that has known discord and decay and knows them well, all of life feeding off of and destroying itself in the cycle of sin and death. And in a nowhere corner of the empire, in a nobody household, God speaks to a poor teenage girl. Through a messenger, God tells this young woman, the king is coming. The suffering servant foretold by the prophets, the one who will confront and deal with evil, the one who will save. You, he tells this poor teenage girl, will be his mother. And then the king arrives. His name is Yeshua, or Jesus. His name means Yahweh rescues, but he is also called Emmanuel, which means God with us. But this king, this God with us, does not arrive in a chariot of fire or as a sword-wielding warrior as, or as an intangible cosmic force. He arrives as a human infant born to poor teenagers in a cave surrounded by livestock and manure. And then he grows like the rest of us. He learns. And finally, when the time is right, he initiates God's great and unexpected rescue mission, the mission to eradicate evil, bring about justice and goodness for all of humanity and all of the cosmos. And he does this as a teacher. He wanders ancient Palestine with dust-covered feet that bring the good news of a new king and a new kingdom. And as the prophets once promised throughout the Hebrew scriptures, Jesus heals the sick. He brings good news to the poor and the oppressed. He works in the ways of justice and mercy. He condemns the systems of oppression and violence. This is what it looks like when God becomes king. And in this strange and unexpected way, a splintering fissure snakes its way up the old way of things, a crack, nearly imperceptible, but spreading. And through that crack shines a light. Because this king, this long-promised, long-awaited rescuer of Israel, is more than just a man. 
He walks upon the waves of the sea. He forgives sins. He is, I am, Yahweh in flesh and blood, God with us. But the old story repeats itself. On a serpentine tongue come the questions, then accusations. Must God be in charge? Is he truly good? Ought we not rule ourselves? God is lying. He isn't good. We can do better. And so this Jesus, this rescuing king, is shackled and dragged into the darkness of an evil night. He's scourged and beaten and mocked and berated, and they hit him and hurl insults at him and spit on him, and the dream falls apart. This would-be king is brought to humiliating ruin, naked, nailed to a cross, the most agonizing instrument of execution the Roman Empire had to offer. He was to be king, but now he dies like a common criminal, stripped naked, bleeding before his own mother, his friends having all abandoned him, his followers scattered He was to be great and mighty, but here he hangs, wheezing, shivering, barely maintaining consciousness. There will be no kingdom, and there will be no king. And as the lion wet his lips with the blood of the antelope, so we, humanity, wet our lips with the blood of our brothers and sisters, with the blood of creation itself, and with the blood of this would-be king, God with us. His body split open. The blood of life runs out as it did from the slaughtered lamb on the altar. A reminder of the great cost of evil, the toll that it takes, the debt that it creates. And somehow, in this moment, the scriptures say that the guilt of humanity, the vandalism of God's goodness was transferred to this shivering sacrificial lamb. And his blood pours out and he remembers that evil is costly the fracturing of relationship, destructive, the power of death, unforgiving, his tattered body, cold and lifeless. He was submerged in death itself, wrapped in the linen of the grave and tucked in the darkness of a tomb, and he entered in full the darkness of death. There will be no kingdom, and there will be no king, until... In the darkness of that tomb, when all hope was lost, beneath his grave linens, God began to mend the broken body of Jesus. And a heart that had been stilled for days trembled in his chest, then beat, then beat again. And a warmth began to spread through what was moments prior a cold and stiff corpse And terrified, the old snake, the one who leads the world astray, fastened his desperate grip on death death around Jesus and found he could hold it no longer. And the once unbreakable chains of death melted away like wax before a flame. And though the evil of history had bore down on him when he died, Jesus sat up and all of evil fell away a withering wisp of ash disappearing in the morning air around him. And a stone had been set before the tomb, a stone put in place to keep grave robbers out, but the stone could not keep the risen Jesus in. And as Jesus crossed the threshold of a grave, he was meant to inhabit until his lifeless body was dust, 
The old curse was broken forever, and death itself crumbled before his might. The king is alive, and the kingdom has come. The movement of Jesus has always been marked by belief in resurrection, the resilient battle cry, what God did for Jesus, he will do for all of humanity and for creation itself. Not an afterlife, not a reincarnated soul, nor the cloudy paradise of another dimension, because resurrection is not the idea that there is something else after and beyond all this. The afterlife is an ellipsis fastened to the final statement of death. Yes, we die, but dot, dot, dot. Then we'll go elsewhere. Then there's something else. That is not the story of resurrection. Resurrection is not an ellipsis. It is a confrontational no to what was once believed to be the final statement of death. No, death will not have the final word. God is not done with me, not done with the body that he knit together in my mother's womb, not done with a world that he made good, not done with plants and animals and mountains and rivers and families and art and culture and creation and life. So whereas the afterlife confronts death and says, yes, but resurrection defies death and says, no, you will not have your way. King Jesus has defeated you. And on a coming day, you will be destroyed forever. And we know this because of Easter. This broken, hurting world will not end in ruin, nor the darkness of death, but in the triumph of resurrection and us with it. And this belief was so central to the early movement of Jesus that they began carving grave sites with the single defiant Latin word resurgum, I shall rise again. The grave, only temporary. What the Father God has done in his son Jesus, he will do for you and I and the entire cosmos. On a coming day, Jesus will usher in the renewal of all things. He will gather up the molecules of every dead and decomposed body, every human ash pile, the dust of ancient skeletons, and he will reform and renew our bodies, joining with them the immaterial part of us that, was, that has been waiting with God. And then King Jesus will do the same act of cosmic revival to all of creation. Here on earth, not far away in another dimension, God will repair, not abandon his good world. For more than two millennia, disciples of Jesus the world over have been united under the banner of resurrection. I shall rise again that this parade of darkness and despair is coming to an end. We know this because of King Jesus, and with all our hearts and all our lives, we will defy the snake until the king destroys him once and for all. Where now our world is marred by animosity and discord, racism, sexism, poverty, injustice, cancer, child abuse, sin, suffering, despair, death. The resurrection of Jesus a single moment in human history is the promise that these things will come to a conclusive end. And today we celebrate something much more than a miracle that a man who was dead came back to life. Today we remember and celebrate that the story does not end in death, that the collective tears of humanity will be wiped away 
by the hands of Jesus himself. The king is alive. The kingdom has come. The tomb is empty. The snake is crushed. This is the story that we tell and tell again. This is our story, and that is why we celebrate. Let's pray together and ask God's Spirit to speak to us on our day of celebration. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.